Welcome to The Pursuit by Canal Pursuit Productions. The Pursuit is a verbal variety podcast that includes uh, a little adventure, a little nostalgia, a little fitness, and a little mental health. So let's get started with a story about an adventure. So I'm here with uh, my good friend, Debbie Bolton. Uh, I first met Debbie in, uh, I think it was 2014, um, when you were running the the um, 100 miler at Sulphur Springs and I did a little pace running for you. And, uh, right. And you were a big part of the Canal Pursuit. You joined for, I think, a couple of days, right? The the second Canal Pursuit as a as a pace runner for me. And uh, yeah, this, that was a year, I believe, running the Canal Pursuit. And yeah, I was with you for two days on that one. Yeah, yeah, and um, and we've done a lot of things together since then. A, a couple hundred hours or so on the Bruce Trail in the past year and a half. And um, mm-hmm. um, but we're not talking about us. We're talking about Debbie today and her big adventure that's uh that's coming up. She's already had some pretty big adventures already. She's she's uh reached the summit of the highest peaks on six of the seven continents and she's going for the big one in uh in a in a few months. Um so she'll be heading out. I'm just looking at my uh my notes here on uh, March 27th you'll be leaving Canada. Um through Dubai, landing in Kathmandu, Nepal, on March 29th, and um, uh, there's a, a tentative re- return date of May 28th. So you're you're going to be a while over there, and we can uh, <laughs> we we can talk about the details of that later. But you've got a big adventure coming up. Yes, yeah, I'll I'll be on the mountain for about two months. Uh, it, it takes about that amount of time. To get ready to get acclimatized and to actually make it to the top and then get back down again. So yeah, it's going to be the whole spring that I'll be away for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, wow, yeah, and it's coming up in uh, yeah just under two months, right? I think I'm at the eight week mark. I'm now counting weeks instead of months. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, yeah, and uh, we were looking at some of the numbers a little earlier, and I'll I'll be publishing these on. Um, on Facebook, we've we've got a couple challenges coming up that, um, that uh, uh, we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, some of the numbers, and I'm a numbers guy, the base camp is at 17,700 feet, roughly. Um, roughly, yeah. Roughly. Elmira, where I'm sitting in my chair, is around 1,200 feet. <laughs> so it's, it's it's not very high above uh, above sea level. 17,000 feet. Also. Private aircraft uh, are not allowed to fly over 10,000 feet, so the base is at 17,000 feet. And um, uh, there's a series of camps that you'll be you'll be packing gear up to. Um, uh, camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four is the highest one, um, right. 26,000 feet, known as the death zone due to the due to the thin air. Term, but yes, it's uh, the altitude where there is insufficient oxygen in the air to sustain human life. So they call it the death zone because you mm-hmm. can't really that altitude for very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the trek up to base camp will take somewhere around 12 days. Okay. And in those 12 days, that's when we're getting all of our gear up there, all of our food for two months, all of our supplies, all our tents, 
uh, our clothing, our medical, uh, our communications, everything has to get to base camp. So once it's at base camp, that's kind of our home base mm -hmm. uh, for the next six weeks post that. Uh, so it'll take about six weeks to then bring that gear and stop camp one and then stop camp two and camp three and camp four. And then we make our final push up to the top, uh, mm -hmm. the last back down again. Right. So, you, and it's not just one climb from 17,700 feet up to 29. So you're not just climbing 12,000 feet. You're no. bringing you're bringing loads up, going back down empty, loads up as you're carrying your gear up, right? So we're doing multiple rotations. So we would take uh, a bunch of gear from base camp to camp one, and we would build camp, and we would put our gear up there, and then we come back to base camp, and then we do the same thing, and then we take gear from base camp up to camp two, okay. and up and leave gear there and then come back down and so on to camp three and camp four. Um, the time that you're spending up at camp three and camp four is not very long, though. Uh, you're mm -hmm. just sort of coming back down again. You'll spend quite a bit of time at camp one and camp two, though, over the, the course of that six weeks just to acclimatize. And then, um, yeah, so basically spreading your gear out amongst those four camps. And then once they're all stocked, you would come back down to base camp, which is typically around mid-May by that point. And then you'd make a final summit push up to the top, which would be maybe a five or six day push um, mm -hmm. from up to the top and then back down again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's safe at base camp. So 17,000 feet where <laughs> where private aircraft aren't allowed to go is the, <laughs> is the safe place, right? Um, um, yeah, so, that's so cool. So that that's more back and forth than any other of the summits that you've done, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, most of them you do in one push, although with Denali in Alaska, there was some of that up and down. You have to cash gear and then come back down and then go back to mm -hmm. camp and then get your cash and then go up again. And so you are doing a little bit of that. But with this one, you are actually going up and down through the icefall probably four or five times. Mm -hmm. So the amount of uh, altitude you would gain or, or the distance you would gain is is probably four or five times what it would be just going from the bottom to the top. Right, right. But that's all part of the acclimatization process, though. It's, it's not possible physically to go from base camp to the top and then back down again without acclimatizing. Right, so right. One, one thing that's so fascinating about high altitude is, is the physiology and what happens to your body. So mm -hmm. acclimatization is the key piece that needs to be done in order to ascend a mountain healthy. So, yeah, that acclimatization process will be about six weeks before the body is actually ready to, uh, to make that trek up. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've, um, uh, as part of your training, there's a, there's a couple components of your your training. One is uh, just, just climbing up steep hills, carrying stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and it doesn't have to be a long steep hill. I've I've spent a lot of laps on uh, Chicopee Ski Hill with you, up and down, up and down. Um, yeah. But also uh, on your on your vacation for fun, you went to Colorado <laughs> and, and climbed uh, where are we five peaks that are fourteen thousand feet or higher in four days, and yep. uh, where are we? Um, and some 13s as well, three 13,000 foot peaks. Right. Um, it's so it's all vertical. Mm -hmm. So if for for you to train your body 
the best way to train for mountains is on a mountain because it mm-hmm. just gives the parallels to, you know, getting getting the elevation. It, you have the weight on your back. It conditions your muscles to what you're going to be doing up there. So being where we are, you said this earlier, like we are not much above sea level. So we don't have, quote, mountains here. I mean, the highest would be Blue Mountain, which is two hours away, and that's 750 feet. So mm-hmm. as far as mountains, if we need, you know, if we want mountains, we need to travel. So I have been going to Lake Placid to train in the Adirondacks on Whiteface Mountain, which gives you um, a 4,000 continuous vertical foot gain from bottom to top. So that actually is the highest vertical gain out of any mountain east of the Rockies. (laughs) So it's a perfect training ground um, for this kind of thing because it just, the entire day you're just going up and up and up and up and up. So yeah, about eight hours on uh, on white face of continual gain which is awesome because it really mimics the terrain and the conditions and time that you're going to be you know spending going up mm-hmm. um base camp in 12 days our longest days might be you know eight to ten hours and again it's just a solid ascent so to train properly for it and to get ready for it the key is to just go uphill keep going uh-huh. uphill as much as you can as often as yeah. you can, yeah, uh, and with as weight as you can. <laughs> mm-hmm. Man, um, so some of the uh, we talked about some of the numbers. What is some of the for for us people who don't uh, spend very much time on mountains? Uh, actually, I don't think I've spent any time on a mountain. Um, what, You're missing uh, it. <laughs> I know, I know. So, uh, what kinds of specialized equipment do you have uh, for climbing or for camping or for, for example, for traversing glaciers? Well, there is some specialized equipment. Um, a lot of it, you know, is cold weather gear. So, for the higher altitudes where it's really cold, um, I do have a one-piece down suit. So I, I feel like a slim man. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. It's warm, and there's no there's no gaps, there's no holes in it, so it's it's like the warmth just stays in. So I have the one piece down suit, and I actually bring three down sleeping bags with me so that I can have one stocked at each camp, so that I'm not carrying it back and forth. Once I've installed it at a camp, it stays there. Mm, okay. So the amount of gear that I take actually is a little ridiculous um, because there are multiples of a lot of things. So I've got down pants, I've got down jackets, I've got the down suit. Um, I will be bringing probably three down jackets of multiple weights. So as you get higher, obviously it gets colder, so you'll need a, a thicker, warmer down jacket. Um, and then flowers, you just have your regular down stuff. So down and wool, I would say, are the primary things that I use, which, again, I, I use that stuff running here in the winter. So it's not like it's specialized per se, you know, on the lower mountain, but on the upper mountain, definitely. Uh, traverse glaciers, I do have expedition boots, which are about eight inches, the sole is about eight to eight inches thick, and the boots go up to my knees, and they're rated for 8,000 meters, which is 26,000 feet and above. So they're super warm for extreme cold weather, so I wore them in Antarctica, and that's the kind of stuff that you would have in those extreme environments. Big crampons on my feet, um, ice axe. Your, your typical mountaineering stuff, uh, lots of rigs for ropes and carabiners and, and uh, ascenders and your uh, like, like typical climbing stuff. Mm-hmm. So 
that I guess would be the mountaineering stuff, the cold weather stuff. A lot of it is what I use here in the winter. It's just more of it. Right. And I'll probably, you know, four or five different sets of everything. Uh, again, so I'll have stuff at each at each camp along the way. Mm-hmm. So it ends up sharing stuff uh, just so that you're prepared at each camp that you've got whatever you need at each camp. Mm-hmm. So and you you have to carry up all of your own um, food and uh, like fuel for cooking and and uh, camping like um, camp mess gear and that stuff, right? Everest is a little different. For Denali, yes, we did. Everything had to be carried out by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but on Denali, Everest, we have yaks, which are wonderful animals that will help bring some of our gear to base camp. So okay. the, the heavy stuff like gear, the, the food, the fuel, uh, even tent, uh, they can all be carried up by yak. So that kind of reduces our load a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. which means we can we can do the base to base camp in just one go. So we're not kind of going back and forth, trying to load back and forth because the yaks will bring a lot of that. Once we're at base camp, then yes, we're responsible for uh, for carrying stuff up. And, and there are Sherpas also that are up there that help uh, with mm-hmm. that. So it's a little different in prior climbs where I've always been uh, on my own doing that, kind of shuttling and, and the carries. Mm-hmm. Everest, we do have... Uh, especially to base camp, which is huge because bringing two months worth of gear to, right. to base camp is several thousand pounds. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the yaks do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll spend, I guess you spend more time at base camp than anywhere else. The, the treks up up for supplying the other camps are, are relatively short, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so, for duration-wise. Yes. So our going up to base camp, we will stay in little villages and little tea houses along the way. So we would go, you know, whatever distance we're going that day, we would only stay in, in that location one night. So we're probably going to end up staying in eight or 10 different little tea houses along the way. And then once we get to base camp, is our home base. And that is where we will always come back to where, our, where the majority of our gear is, where our Palms are going to be there. Our medical tent is going to be there. The main uh, kitchen tent is going to be there. And then the other camps will be sort of transient camps. So we'll stay at camp one for a night or two to acclimatize and come back down to base and spend a couple of days recovering at base. And then we'll go up to camp two, spend a couple of nights, and then come back down to base. So base camp is is kind of like our home. And then the other camps are what we would use to acclimatize mm-hmm. until we're ready to make our final. We would go from base camp, and then we stay a night at camp two, night at camp three, night at camp four, and then up and then back down again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we don't spend a lot of other camp. It would just be a couple of nights at a time, and then back down to base. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, uh, just looking at my next question here, the the physical challenges, and you've already talked about um, uh, about some of them. It's it's really cold. Um, there, there's a there's a lot of vertical because it's it's like a big hill. And um, uh, <laughs> and you got you got to carry quite a bit of stuff. Uh, just thinking, I every time I think about you climbing Mount Everest, I think about Sir Edmund Hillary and the, the first guy <laughs> with the British expedition that climbed up Everest. And um, he, I wonder what kind of training he did, or what kind of equipment he had, and what kind of acclimatization he did, and what. Um, uh, 
the the level of technology certainly then wasn't as uh, as high as it is now, right? Um, it would be a, it would be a much different experience. But one of the things that you you mentioned, um, considering the the physical challenges and um, the the training, you've got a like <laughs> an unbelievable uh, training regimen. Um, but I asked you the other day what the what the typical person looked like or typical body type or what what's the typical person that uh that climbs these um these summits and it's it's not a, a five foot one <laughs> young lady right <laughs> <laughs> there's it's all shapes and sizes um <laughs> And actually, altitude is like a great equalizer. I mean, you can be the fittest person on the mountain, and altitude sickness could still come and get you. So mm. it's looking at a certain body type or, you know, male, female, or, you know, height or even muscle mass. It's really how well your body acclimatizes to altitude. Mm -hmm. um, some of that, you know, is in your control. Some of it isn't. So if you think about... On Everest, you are dealing with about a third of the level of oxygen that you're getting in your lungs as you are at sea level. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually the level of oxygen in the air that changes because the level of oxygen in the atmosphere is pretty stable at 21% wherever you are in the world, but mm -hmm. it's air pressure. So as right. you go up, the air pressure drops. Yeah. So there is about a third of the air pressure at altitude like on Everest. So you are then only bringing in a third of the oxygen into your lungs. Right. So that is only a third of the oxygen that's getting to your muscles and to your organs. So things are obviously affected when, you know, you're being so starved of oxygen. So mm -hmm. how your body adapts to that and how it acclimatizes to that really is your measure of success. Mm -hmm. It's not whether you're six feet or five feet or if you've got 3% body fat or 10% body fat um it, it really is how your body adjusts to mm -hmm. altitude so because of your muscles and your organs being deprived of oxygen you have a very rapid uh, i call it the high altitude weight loss diet it's not intentional it just sort of happens uh you have to start to cannibalize so your body is is looking for sources of energy and so it just goes for muscle so mm -hmm. actually the, the people that have more muscle mass tend to lose more than someone who is smaller because they don't have as much muscle mass I and mean, you don't you don't lose as much. Right. Um, yeah, and not burning as many calories. A smaller person doesn't burn as many calories, right? Perhaps. Yeah, but it is about fat ad adaptation as well because the if mm -hmm. you can tap into your main source of energy being from fat, and we all have a ton of fat in our bodies, even very thin people have a lot of fat stores. So if you can train yourself, which is what I do in some of my training, I do fat ad adaptation. If you can if you can tap into those fat stores, you are much more able to use that as your energy source so that you won't cannibalize muscle as quickly. Mm -hmm. So part of your training is not just doing your workouts. It is, you know, what food you're eating, when you're eating it. If you're doing some um, some workouts where you are fasted so that you're teaching your body to look for fat as an energy source versus uh, carbs. Mm -hmm. So if you can do that then it will just sort of it's on autopilot it'll do that when you're on the mountain so it'll help you to tap that into that source for energy rather than your muscle mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cool 
our bodies are are uh, pretty complex things. Um, they are amazing things. Yeah, <laughs> it constantly sure. when I when I'm you know on these mountains or what I learn about about physiology and that it's like the human body is so resilient and it's so incredible and you just can't help but appreciate what our bodies can do. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing after like especially like a hard workout or a long workout or like last week I was in like classes again and just a super long day and it's so tough and I get back and I think wow that was just so incredible that my body could actually do that mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm that you that you know our bodies are are able to to keep doing it day after day because mm-hmm. that's one of the mm-hmm. things when you're on a mountain for a couple of months it's not just you know a workout here and there it is every day continuous week after week month after month so mm-hmm. you have to be able to even after a tough day, get up the next day and, and still be able to, to do it, um, you know, or you just, you won't make it to the top. So, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Body, our body is that way. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a favorite, uh, just related to what you said, getting up the next day and doing it again. I've got a favorite quote and I think I sent it to you in an email from oh, yeah. Ar- Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I, I remember this when I'm running because um, it's got a lot to do with, with training mentality from Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll read this here. I've got it in front of me. The last three or four reps are what makes the muscle grow. This area of pain divides the champion from someone else who is not a champion. That's what most people lack, having the guts to go on and just say they'll go through the pain no matter what happens. <laughs> and um, so I, I picture when I'm out running, I'm on my long run on Saturday or Sunday morning and I'm two kilometers from home and I feel like uh, I've, I've had enough for the day and my, you know, I've, I've, I've run 28k. That's a pretty good training run. I can walk the last two kilometers home. I always think of this quote, and I mm-hmm. always end up running to the to, right to the end of my driveway. And I, so I picture the all of the the early part of the workout as just the warm up for the really important last kilometer because that's where all the benefit is, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And there's got to be something that prompts you to do that, though. Which mm-hmm. you know. Why, why do you push yourself and why do you want to push yourself? Like everyone has their own why mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever your why is, find it and hold on to it because that's what's going to get you through those last 2K of your run is what's going to get mm-hmm. you through in you know, days and is what's going to get you to not quit and to not stop mm-hmm. uh, is why is and just keep that, hold that close. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And keep that... Um... Keep it, keep it in a in a mental place where you can pull it out and look at it and think about it when mm-hmm. you're when you're um, when you're in that place that you're struggling, right? That that like tomorrow morning is going to be a lousy a lousy time to run. It's snowing here right now. It's going to snow all night. Uh, yep. It's not going to be a very fun run. But I've got a I've got a new outlook on running in the winter. It's uh, it takes me about 10% longer to run uh, a 10K, but it's it's better training. It's, it'll make me stronger, right? <laughs> you find spring. You'd be like, oh, 10K, no problem. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, I I didn't I didn't prepare you on this question, but I've been thinking about it quite a bit lately. Um, in in trying to um, uh, I don't know, trying to ins- inspire others or to 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 be a, a kind of a, a role model. Um, there's uh, part of the message I'd like to kind of put across is that 
you don't have the perfect body. I don't have the perfect body. There's a lot of athletes who have struggles that to deal with. I know you've got some dietary restrictions. I know I've got arthritis in my fingers and toes and my lower back. But what challenges do you face every day that you're okay to talk about? And if you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, when you're talking about body type and that, what, what is the definition of perfect? I mean, yeah. as, long as, as long as it's perfect for us, then it doesn't really matter what, you know, the definition of perfect is to someone mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, physical challenges, we all have our physical challenges. We're all aging. And I find doing this kind of stuff is getting harder as I get older. Mm -hmm. And recovery is harder. And being a female, you know, going through female menopausal issues is, is very difficult um, and still trying to remain active and the challenges that go along with that. So we're all going to have our struggles. How we get through those struggles, I think we just alluded to it earlier, was, you know, why we want to continue doing this. Mm -hmm. and for me, I, I want to be strong and healthy. I, I want to be able to be active in my old age. And I find maybe not to the extent of, you know, climbing the mountains and that, but just staying physical and staying active and continuing to get outside is what keeps me strong. And uh, I'm hoping that that will lead to a nice retirement. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can when, I, when I'm older uh, is to just stay in the game. I, I find if if you if you kind of let things go or, or you give up a little bit, it's so hard to get back again. And I just mm -hmm. had that a year and a half ago when I had the surgery on my hip, and coming back from that was a real struggle. And mm -hmm. I had I have you for a lot of that because we spent so much time on the trail together trying to to recover and, and get strong again. But again, when you have kind of a, you know, a setback like that, it's, it takes a toll mentally on you. Mm -hmm. And I find that your, your physical body and your mental health are so interconnected that when one isn't quite right, the other one doesn't quite function right. Um, but also conversely, when one is healthy, I find the other is healthy. So it's so important for me to keep physical and to keep active and to keep healthy and strong so that my mental health is also strong. Uh -huh. And I find if I'm struggling mentally, I have no motivation to go out and do a workout. So it, they're, they're just so closely and intimately connected that um, I find the struggle is to find a balance so that you're trying to keep both happy. I was thinking about a conversation I had recently with one of the guys in my office, and he asked me if I knew who David Goggins is. And um, and I said, yeah, I think I've heard the name. And um, so he described who he is, and I did a, a little search, and he's a, he's a phenomenal athlete. He um, uh, A Marine and uh, an incredible uh incredible list of uh, of achievements um i've always kind of thought guys that do that extreme those extreme achievements he's not just done a couple of things he's done dozens of incredibly difficult things um there's they 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 don't seem real to me um 
the I've kind of hung out with you for a while and and I know <laughs> I know you're real. Um yeah. I don't I don't know David Goggins' full history. I don't know if he's got some struggles that he's gone through, sorry, um uh a, a physical disability or some dark place that he came from and has come back from, but I know a lot of people have um have come from from really difficult places and thrived instead of just survived and those people have uh those people have my respect those people have a, a lot of respect for me because they're they're regular people who uh put their shoes on uh you know one at a time or pull their pants on one leg at a time just like I do and and mm -hmm. um, they're more identifiable right um they're real people they have their struggles and and you mentioned David Goggins he came from a pretty dark place as well like he his story actually starts if if you read his book or if if you uh listen to his podcast and that his he has a pretty dark beginning and mm -hmm. he found focusing on on getting his mental uh strength up and and focusing on you know doing physical challenges gave him a purpose and mm -hmm. that's how he you know put himself out of it and yeah he's got some some remarkable achievements He's not the only one. There's, there's a lot of stories of people that have excelled from, like you said, a dark place to somewhere where they, you know, are shining. But mm -hmm. everyone has a story. Everyone has a backstory. We all have yep. one. And yes, some people come from places where they have struggled and, and they've also excelled. But I don't think anyone really uh, doesn't have a story. It, it, they're just they're just all different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And how we and how we each come out of that really is dependent upon upon ourselves and how much work we put in and um where where we find our strengths from mhm mm so what what are the uh as as you're going through your training right now and you're getting down to counting down weeks instead of months um what kind of things are you are you thinking about? I, you've done some, uh, you've you've taken care of a lot of the the logistics stuff, uh, or at least have your to do list for a lot of the the logistics stuff. Um, how are you feeling? How your what's your where's your head right now? <laughs> I'm actually feeling really good. Um, I'm, I'm feeling strong. I think training has been going really well, which, and I'm very grateful that I'm. I'm physically able to do what I'm doing, um, just being, you know, not even a year and a half post-surgery. Mm -hmm. I'm training 22 and 25 hours a week right now. And yeah, sure, I have some sore muscles, but I think things are going really well. So I, I'm feeling good about, you know, the eight-week time frame. I saw that on paper the other day. I was said, oh, eight weeks. Wow. But I'm okay with that because I think I'm I'm getting ready and I'm I'm actually getting kind of excited to go. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because I've spent so much time planning this and researching this and training for this that, yeah, I don't have the nerves that I've had in the past. Mm -hmm. And I just because there's been so much preparation that has gone into it and because I've, I've actually been planning this trip, I've been planning this mountain for probably six or seven years. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I feel pretty good right now. Have you uh, have you visualized what those last uh, few yards are going to feel like? <laughs> oh yes, I have visualized. <laughs> so I have a, 
have my long days. Mm-hmm. Pretty much spend a, you know the majority of the time that they're thinking and visualizing and troubleshooting and thinking, okay, if this happens, what would I do? Uh, if I get, you know, hit with this problem, how will I solve it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I see myself at various points on the mountain. I see myself, you know, standing on top. I, I, I visualize all kinds of stuff, and I find that that actually helps to take some of the nerves away because I've, I've, you know, kind of seen myself in that position. So when I actually get there, which, you know, I've, I've done this in the past too, when I actually get somewhere where I visualize myself being, it's actually a calming feeling that I have. Mm. So to visualize it here, and I was just practicing ladders today, I had my big boots and crampons on, and I was in the snow and I was walking across ladders. And so when I get to the ice fall, it's not a new experience. Like, you know, I've, I've been there. I've been looking down. I visualize myself looking into a 200 foot crevasse. And so I, I kind of put myself in these, these places and these situations so that mm-hmm. when I get not as scary, right. <laughs> there, there are some scary things. I do have some concerns, but I think the more you visualize that kind of takes a bit of the stigma away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the more decisions you make um, about uh, what you're going to do in a, in any situation, the more of those decisions that you make in advance, uh, the simpler it's going to be for your for your for your head and for your stress level when you're there and something does happen, right? Right, because it's not it's not like you're having to make those decisions on the fly. It's something mm-hmm. you've thought about almost pre-planned you can't plan everything there's going to be things that are thrown at you that you can't foresee but if you go through you know a number of scenarios and you're prepared for things that are you know out of your control um you're calmer when they do happen and you're able to manage them better because you've actually foreseen some of these things potentially happening Mm -hmm. Just before we finish, I wanted to mention that um, there's going to be a, a, a couple of vertical challenges that um, that y- you wanted to challenge some people to and uh, and get some people involved with, and we'll be putting some uh, some info out on social media. One of them is a uh, is a virtual event that's going to be going through the months of February and March, right. and um, the other is an in-person event. We don't have the venue yet. I'm, I'm still working on that, but uh, somewhere somewhere up in the Beaver Valley uh, where we want to get some serious vertical in while you are um, uh, while you are on the mountain, we can be our compadres here and at least try to get a little <laughs> bit of vertical up on uh, on the Beaver Valley ski hill. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's about it. Is is there anything that you wanted to say that I that we haven't covered? You know, there's so much that we talk about <laughs> while we're while we're out on the hill and in the trails and that and it all comes back to to getting out, to to, to being out and being active to, to maintain sort of that, that healthy state of being, both physical and mental, and just how critical it is to our our welfare to continue to be active. Staying active and um, reasonably healthy will will set you up, especially like you said, when we're as we're getting older, um, 
if uh, if we're in okay physical shape and uh, get sick, we've got a, a bigger buffer zone than if we're um, if we're not well to start with, right? Well, thanks very much. I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, to talk I'll, and um, um, yeah, spending your time in a busy schedule where you're doing twenty some hours of training a week. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I need to thank you for your tireless effort uh, with campaigning and your your work with advocating for mental health. Um, it's giving a voice to people who don't have one, um, and it is very, very much appreciated. All right. My pleasure. All right. Now let's take a look at something old, a little nostalgia. When is the last time you watched television on a black and white screen? And I don't mean a computer monitor, those monochrome ones from the, uh, I guess, the 80s. Um, black and white television. I think I was probably around six years old when we got our first color television. But we had a second TV, I think, uh, black and white until I was in my... Um, in my early teens, we used to watch. Well, there were still lots of programs that were broadcast in uh, in black and white, even though the the TV was in color. But that was, uh, let's say, mid-century modern. Um, I think the the program I remember most was Hogan's Heroes when I was a kid, and uh, that is probably so politically incorrect these days. Black and white television. Our stretch of the day is brought to you by Park Massage Therapy. It's time for your stretch of the day from Park Massage Therapy. All right, let's get started. This is for all you desk workers out there. Sadly, it's more than most of us. Okay, so sitting in your chair with your feet flat on the ground, take your right leg and put it over top of your left leg. So knee over knee. Then take your left hand and twist your body to the right, putting your left hand on your right armrest or your right thigh if you don't have an armrest. Now look over your right shoulder. We're going to call this a full body spinal twist. Hold, look over your shoulder, make funny faces at your coworkers or the side of your office cubicle, whatever makes you happy. And after a few seconds or when I'm done talking, then you're going to release. Move your arm back to center, uncross your legs, put your left leg over your right leg, put your right arm on your left armrest or your left thigh and look over your left shoulder. So again, we're going to hold that position and look over our shoulder and make funny faces at the coworkers or the boss and count down the minutes until we actually get to stop this nonsense stretching stuff because even though we're going to feel better when it's done right now, we're generally just annoyed we had to stop working and get out of the zone and get back into our own bodies. You can relax again, bring yourself back into center, and just take a deep breath and realize that you just moved your body. Congratulations from Park Massage Therapy. In fitness news, four cyclists have been left fuming after they were forced to stop just five kilometers from the finish line because race organizers failed to factor in a boat crossing uh, entering the last portion of stage two of the ladies' tour of Norway, the foursome held a 30-second margin over the chasing peloton. 
and looked set to leave them in their dust as they neared the finish line. However, with just five kilometers to go, they rounded a corner and saw the barrier to a bridge they needed to cross was down, meaning they were unable to cross it. A boat was waiting to go under, meaning the bridge needed to be raised, a time-consuming process that allowed the peloton to catch up, take up residence next to the small group that was once well ahead of them. Uh, while there was talk of letting the four women start 20 seconds ahead of the rest of the field, race organizers said they would instead have to start the same time as everyone else. That arrangement did not work in their favor, with none of the original leading four managing to crack a podium finish. And some mental health related news. Uh, the date is February 3rd, 2023. University of Southern Denmark Faculty of Health Sciences reported that there's a correlation between traffic noise and risk of developing tinnitus. Uh, they point to a vicious cycle involving stress reactions and sleep disturbance as a potential cause. If you live near a busy road, it may increase your stress levels and affect your sleep. When you're under stress and sleep poorly, you may be at a higher risk of developing tinnitus. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We'll be back with more adventures on the Bruce Trail and other places. Stay tuned.